Hello everyone and welcome to this archive from the ongoing free telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored by the Peace Alliance. I'm your host, Molly Rowan-Leach, and please join us as we host these weekly telecouncils, 5 p.m. Pacific, every Thursday. Find out more at dopeace.us and scroll over the Restorative Justice tab for a full menu of archives and upcoming schedule. This archive is from Thursday, February 28th and features Jesse Lava. We had a powerful conversation with him. He's the campaign director of Beyond Bars. We hope you'll join us in the near future on restorative justice on the rise. And please check out more about Jesse and his work with Beyond Bars at beyondbars.org or at the bravenewfoundation.org. Thank you and enjoy this archive. Good evening, everybody, and such a warm welcome to you all, wherever you are in the world tonight. This is Restorative Justice on the Rise, and tonight's edition, weekly edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise, is featuring one of the foremost wayshores and pioneers, um, and I'll be introducing him in just one moment. If this is your first time with us, on behalf of the Peace Alliance, again, welcome. This this uh, virtual council and uh, series is ongoing. It's free. We post the archives, and we're also creating a podcast that will be accessible uh, in the near future for everyone who's interested in um, subscribing to the feed, and we'll make sure we keep you updated on that. Um, you can go to dopeace.us and scroll over Restorative Justice for a full menu of past archives from last season and this season, and to check out the schedule of our upcoming guests. We really appreciate also your consideration not only of our series um, being run by donations and encourage you if you're inspired to support us in any way you feel possible, um, and also to tonight's guest, and I'll be talking a little bit about how to do that throughout tonight's interview and, and council time. So again, welcome, and tonight, probably towards the half an hour mark and maybe beyond that, we'll be opening up the discussion with our featured guest. Um, it, for those of you who may again be here for the first time, simply pressing one on your telephone keypad even during the times that uh, we aren't necessarily taking questions. I want to warmly welcome everyone to, to uh, get involved in the conversation if you'd like to. So again, pressing one on your telephone keypad throughout tonight's call, and then at the times when we break, we'll, we'll check in with the group. Without further ado, I just want to give uh, just a deep bow to Jesse Lava, who is the campaign, campaign director of Beyond Bars, which is a project of the uh, Brave New Foundation. The Brave New Foundation actually is the number one most viewed nonprofit on YouTube. Interesting point there. And Jesse is focusing on, uh, well, let me just back up. He conceptualized and runs the Beyond Bars campaign to curb mass incarceration. His work also includes strategic planning, producing videos, writing articles, and forging partnerships with groups working to make a positive difference in this field. Previously a political campaign staffer and communication strategist for progressive causes, his work has covered an array of policy areas including climate change, campaign finance, drug treatment, and funding for social services. Jesse was also the founding director of Faithful Democrats, a group that worked to, uh, to reclaim the national values debate from the religious right. He has a master's in public policy from Harvard and a bachelor's in government from Wesleyan University. So I just want to war warmly welcome you, Jesse, into the conversation tonight. And uh, thanks for being here, out of your busy schedule, taking some time. Thanks for having me, Molly. Great to have you. 
I just wondered if, uh, as we often do, we start out kind of with some background on what inspired you to get into this work, Jesse? Well, social justice work in general is something that's been with me for a long time. I come from Evanston, Illinois, which is a racially and economically diverse town. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of rich folks and poor folks, whites and blacks, living next to each other. And I think it was clear to everyone how arbitrary it could be who got ahead and who didn't. Um, and so I think if you come out of that kind of environment, um, you might be more likely to try to work um, to advocate for policies that would make a more just society where everyone has an opportunity. Uh, I also, uh, you know, my, my mother was a very spiritual person and used to pray with me at uh, my bedside when I was a child. And, you know, all our prayers had to involve not only giving thanks for, you know, the mommy and daddy that loved me and, uh, you know, having enough to eat, a roof over my head, etc. But we also had to pray for others, for those who did not have a mommy and daddy, for those who didn't have enough to eat, for uh, those who needed more opportunity. Uh, and my mom died when I was a teenager, and I think one of the ways that I've tried to keep her spirit alive in me is by taking those prayers to heart uh, and, um, and working for social justice in my career. Wow. That is a powerful story. Uh, it's very interesting, too, in, in this series we hear such incredible backgrounds of people and how they come into this field, you know, restorative justice, prison reform, um, peace work, uh, awareness building, and it, it's just incredible to me how perhaps the, the link between um, our own personal stories and experiences and, and you, you know, as you are activating <clears throat> that thought of the good for all is, is very prominent um, in, uh, as we move in the world. Absolutely, and, and, and you know, I, the, the work that I'm doing now involving prisons, involving the mass incarceration and, and just how incarcerated the United States is as a nation, you know, to think about that, there are very few people who are more disempowered than prisoners in the United States. It's, you know, not a politically popular subject to bring up unless you're going to bash them. Um, there are a lot of interests working against changing the system. And so if we do want to work for more opportunities for those who don't have it, there's hardly a better place to look than in the mass incarceration system. Mm. We have a lot to cover tonight. Um, and maybe we could start out with a little background on, uh, of course, uh, the, the foundation and then um, some specifics about this Beyond Bars program, which sure. is a, a, you know, a, an aspect of, of the foundation. I know there's a lot cooking for the foundation yeah. in other areas, but... Well, Brave New Foundation it. does uh, videos, documentaries, social media, um, blogging, um, other forms of media around social justice issues. So our goal is to promote the common good, promote social justice through media. Um, in, in the past, you know, our director is named Robert Greenwald, and he has directed uh, films that got a, lot of it, got a lot of attention, outfoxed about Fox News, um, Walmart, the high cost of low price. There's a film called Iraq for Sale about uh, war profiteering uh, among uh, Iraq contractors. And in about 2007, with the advent of the YouTube era, uh, Brave New Foundation shifted into doing more short videos. We still do some full-length documentaries, but for the most part, it's short videos. Um, and we do that because that's increasingly how people get their information. Um, and we also want to make sure that we keep our eye on, on impact. It takes an awful long time to put together a full-length documentary, and we would like to uh, push as much as we possibly can for concrete change. Um, and so as, as Brave New Foundation has developed, it's, it's had a whole bunch of campaigns. Um, one campaign that's going on here is called Quentime, and that engage, engages Latino youth in politics. There is a campaign called War Costs, which is about U.S. militarism. And then there's Beyond Bars, which is the campaign that I run, and that's about mass incarceration. Great. And, and I know that um, you have a bundle of, of statistics and things to share with us tonight. And um, maybe we start out with uh, just talking a bit about why we have mass incarceration in place in the first place. And then we go into some other points around um, why it doesn't make us safer and why it doesn't make sense dollar-wise. Right. right. Um, well, the, why is it in place? 
the reason it's in place is two reasons. One is profit um, for certain segments of, of the population, not the broad population, but it's profit for the few. And the other reason is political opportunism. So basically in the 1970s, Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs and said we were going to get tough on crime. And remember, this was an era when it was becoming no longer acceptable to use outright racial bigotry in campaigns. The era of George Wallace had come to an end, and politicians knew that if they wanted to appeal to racial sentiments or to appeal to, appeal to countercultural sentiments, um, then they had to use more subtle means. And so one way they did that was by talking about getting tough on crime, because there was an image in a lot of Americans' minds about what a criminal looked like. And that, of course, for, for many people, is an image of a black male. Uh, and because of that, um, it became very politically popular to uh, demand increasingly harsh penalties for more and more crimes, to have mandatory minimums, no matter the circumstances in which a crime was committed. Uh, and now uh, we have, through the war on drugs, through uh, increased sentences in all forms of, of, uh, of of behavior, not just drug use or drug sales, um, we now have the largest prison state in the entire world by a long shot. The United States has 2.3 million people behind bars. That is about 1% of the adult population. And it not only has more people than any country in the world, more people than China, more people than India, more people than, than Russia behind bars, it also has a higher rate of incarceration than any country in the world, and that would be a higher rate than Iran, a higher rate than Singapore, you know, one of the countries that's notorious for being absolutely brutal when it comes to cracking down on even mild crimes. Yet the United States does it even more. And, you know, we have this image of the land of the free, and, and this mass incarceration system kind of gets in the way of that, um, and we, we clearly have a, a long way to go um, before, we can, um, before we can change it. Mm. I was doing some recent research um, for a blog that uh, the Peace Alliance posted, um, and I was very uh, well. And also, it was a cultivation of some awareness that was brought to me um, and to us by uh, Michelle Alexander, author of *The New Jim Crow*. She brought it up as we opened this season of restorative justice on the rise. She spoke about uh, the the statistic or the fact, rather, that. Um, as you're saying, in the 1970s, there was a, a general awareness and even a, a, a quote um, from, and I, I, I can't remember the exact name of the organization, but it was a, a top-level evaluative of the justice system in the United States, and maybe you could speak more to it, but um, the essence of it was that it was very clear that, uh, that it, prisons were not of use, that they were actually creating um, uh, offenders and creating criminals, and that there was um, a kind of a linchpin moment there, as you were saying, where things really turned from having that, that uh, awareness that, that perhaps downsizing and eradicating prisons was a better idea than what we actually ended up doing. Right. Um, we have a system, as you mentioned, that in some ways is criminogenic, and that mm. means that it actually creates crime. Um, and there are a few ways in, in which it does that. First of all, let's just take the war on drugs as an example. What happens when you take substances that you know that people want, and you know that people are going to get one way or the other, and you put it on the black market instead of regulating, controlling, and taxing it? Well, we saw how that happened in, in prohibition. And the mafia reigned supreme in cities across the country, Al Capone in Chicago, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so now, instead of it being the mafia that's in charge of alcohol, it's gangs and cartels that are in charge of drugs. So if we really wanted to cut into the gangs and the cartels and we really wanted to diminish the violence, we would end the drug war and decide that narcotics need to be regulated, controlled, and taxed. Um, it's not always a pretty picture. You know, alcohol isn't always a pretty picture. There are a lot of people with alcohol problems, a lot of problems that happen in society because people use it. And yet we know that we are better off because it is not 
prohibited. We are safer because it's not prohibited, and it's, and it's fairer because people get to make up their own minds about what to do with their own bodies. Um, and so in that sense, uh, uh, the war on drugs and mass incarceration, the two of them are very strongly linked, are making us less safe. There's, there's one other key way in which mass incarceration is making us less safe, and that mm -hmm. is a fundamental lack of rehabilitation, crime prevention, um, treatment. We have a system that is so, so set on punishment instead of prevention that it forgets to actually do corrections. You know, these things are usually called the departments of corrections, but they really should be called the departments of punishment because there is no correction going on in, in most of these places. So when people come out of prison, there's a two-thirds chance that they'll be rearrested within three years. There's a 40% chance they'll be reincarcerated within three years. Um, and so if, if we want to create conditions that diminish crime and that diminish the need to respond to crime, then instead of having this system that's all about punishment, we should really be focused on prevention and rehabilitation. What do you think's underneath that? Our need to punish. I mean, that's a huge. That's a huge can of worms. Yeah, but I mean, what's fear. What's underneath that? You know, uh, fear. <laughs> I, I uh -huh. think our our policies are mostly driven by fear. People do want to be safe. You know, they don't want to worry about the people they consider to be criminals. They want to worry about their kids. Now, of course, it becomes a little bit different once somebody they know has an addiction problem or once somebody they know uh, is, is uh, ensnared in some behaviors that they shouldn't be. But um, people want to be safe. Uh, and that is not only understandable, that should be a primary goal. Um, the problem is we have a skewed sense of what creates public safety. Um, what we really need are strong communities, healthy communities with networks of people, uh, intervention early on for people seem to be going astray, strong jobs programs so that everybody who wants to work can, uh, strong education programs uh, so that people don't get left behind. And when you have these strong communities, the need for crime diminishes in the first place. But instead of thinking proactively about how to create these healthy communities, we're driven by fear, and when we see weakening communities, when we see despair in communities, we try to lash out and try to get it under control in whatever ways we can. But it turns out that's not what works. Mm. And in some way, um, does that play a part in, in the stigmatiz stigmatization of certain populations and uh, what seems like outright focus on certain groups? In, um, you know, and the statistics actually show it, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Can you speak far to those a bit? Sure. I mean, far Across disproportionately, um, you know, African-American males bear the brunt of it. 90% um, of the people incarcerated are men, and a vastly disproportionate number of those are African-American. Hispanics are also disproportionately represented, although not as much as African-Americans. Uh, and then whites uh, and, and Asians are way behind. And, and I say all this um, not because... We should be, you know, some people might say, oh, let's just incarcerate whites more. You know, they say if we really want it to be even, why does that mean we should decrease our, our punishment of, of other people? And the reason is that it's not working and it's ripping up communities. Uh, there was a New York Times article recently that called prisons a poverty trap because people get out of prison, they they have a scarlet letter on their head because they have a, fel a felony. No one wants to hire them. They cannot go into public housing because the law says they can't. It's difficult, extremely difficult, and sometimes impossible to get other forms of public assistance. So you can't get a job. You can't, you know, you can't find a place to live because without a job you can't afford private housing, and you'd you probably be kept out of that anyway. Um, and you know, so what exactly are you supposed to do? it pushes you right back into crime, into, into what you know. And, and so yet the, the prisons, um, at least in one case that I know of, are asking um, those who are released to uh, make enough money to even pay their, for their own probationary services. Right, and this Not is when they're paying them a dollar, you know, 50 an hour or something. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous. It's, it's basically creating, it's creating criminals, or at least perpetuating criminality, uh, and, and then reproaching people for being criminals, even though the system itself has, has created it. Um, there's hardly something more cruel than that. Let, let's take a look for a moment also at um, one of the other populations uh, that seems to be 
completely uh, growing and completely stigmatized, and that's those of the uh, the mentally ill. Um, and and you, I just want to mention to everyone, uh, Beyond Bars and the Brave New Foundation has published a, a really great video on YouTube about. Um, it's called These New Yorkers Went to Prison Over and Over, Then This Thing Happened. So can we start out, uh, just kind of phase into a, a quick synopsis of what this video outlines in New York sure. State? Yeah, and, this um, is, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, basically this video was about alternative to incarceration programs in New York. There's, there are programs in New York and in, and in most states where a judge can say, instead of going to prison, we will divert you into some kind of rehabilitation program instead. Um, and so what this video is advocating for was more funding for these kinds of programs because you get a huge bang for the buck when you do that kind of thing. And so in the process, we profiled a couple of people. Uh, from different parts of the state, one upstate, one in the city, um, one a white woman, one a Latino man. Um, so very different um, you know, lives before entering the criminal justice system. But the same basic thing happened. They both had addiction problems. They both cycled in and out of prison over and over and over because of that. Um, and then once they were able to get treated, uh, the cycle stopped. Uh, now the man in particular, uh, he, his father uh, was an addict. He was an addict, and his son was starting to become wrapped up in this stuff too. And he saw it happening, and that's part of what led him to um, you know, try, to, try to cut it off at the pass and, and break this cycle. And so now his son, instead of, you know, his son had dabbled in, in selling drugs. But now instead of doing that, his son is, 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 is training to become an addictions counselor himself. Um, and so that's, it's, it's really a story of how when you believe in people and give people the resources they need to improve, people can do amazing things. Mm. And can, can you speak a little bit, um, if you have the statistics, to the fact of, again, the mentally ill incarcerated? Yes. I know that the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill have statistics, but it, you know it's arguable that when statistics come from the inside, they probably aren't quite the right estimates. Well, you know, um, I rely on the same numbers that that you do and they are all over the place one you know mm -hmm. and they're all phrased slightly differently so you know uh, well, like one thing said that about 56 percent of people in state prisons have some history of, of mental illness now that's not the same as severe mental illness and some smaller percentage have have that um, so but it's clearly a higher percentage than the general population now i'm from like i said the chicago area originally um, and Cook County, which is the county that Chicago sits in and my hometown of Evanston sits in, um, is the Cook County Jail is the single largest provider of mental health in the entire country because it has so many people that are there because they're mentally ill. So this jail is the one who's providing them their mental health services. It's completely backwards. Um, instead of treating health problems as health problems, they're penalized, put in the care of people who have no idea how to deal with health problems, and then of course when they don't get better, they're kept there or they're released and commit another crime and come back. It's perpetuating the exact right? cycle. Or even punished. Or for, even punished. For those perhaps with more severe forms of mental illness, um, I have documentation of, of those who've been punished in, in the hole, for example, for being forthright with their their mental health experiences, um, and I just you know it, it's just incredible to me that um, incredible is not the word, but to even say that they are providing these kinds of services mm. is a severe <laughs> overestimate. Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, it's, yeah, I, these are not people who are trained in providing mental health services. And yet, by default, because we don't have a, a strong network in place to take care of folks who are mentally ill, the closest thing you come to provision of services comes from these prisons and jails. Um, it's just, it's not the way that you would set up a society if you were really trying to prevent crime and unlock human potential. It, it just has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we, for everyone tonight here, um, we're moving in a direction towards, uh, J Jesse's going to speak in a little bit about solutions, and we'll probably cover quite a few bases here. But I just feel it's so important for us to know the real truth of what's going on, because it appears that, that it's only now coming to light. 
Mm. Um, and and it's so important to make sure that we know the seriousness of this moment in time and also the great opportunities um, and transformations that are happening, just, you know, like with what you were describing, Jesse, with uh, the experiment and, and the test that you did with um, these two folks in New York. Mm-hmm. And I would really encourage everyone um, if you haven't already, to, to go check out beyondbars.org. Make a donation there. The donate button is right up at the top of the page. Oh, thank and you. And there's also so- social media um, connections there as well. And then um, for further information about, about the Brave New Foundation, bravenewfoundation.org for that. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about the um, – the damage this causes, mass incarceration causes, to families and communities. And if you could also speak to the corporate interests that make it really difficult for people to communicate, I'd love to hear from you on that. Sure. Um, there is a, you know, sometimes it's called the prison industrial complex, sometimes it's called prison for profit. Whatever you call it, there's a lot of money to be made in prisons by an awful lot of people. Um, some of these people are actual you know, cor- or, or people who run corporations that own prisons, private prisons. Uh, the Correctional Corporation of America is a famous one. The Geo Group is uh, another one, and collectively they have th- they had three billion dollars uh, in, in revenue uh, last year. Um, but not all of these profiteers are actual private prisons, because for now only about eight percent of the people who are incarcerated are in an actual private prison. Instead, you have a lot of people profiting in small ways. You have phone companies profiting because when people who are incarcerated want to call home to their families, well, they can't shop around for the best deal. There's a monopoly, and the phone companies decide to jack up the phone rates to as much as they can possibly get away with. By the way, further cutting into the paltry wages, um, far below minimum wage, that people in prison um, can receive if they can work uh, at all. Then there are the people who provide the food and the clothing. Um, there, are the, there are the people, the companies who employ prison labor. And the companies that employ prison labor, of course, don't want to pay uh, a living wage or a minimum wage at least um, to people who are outside of the prison if they can exploit folks in it for uh, a, a low rate. So there, there are a whole lot of people benefiting from this. And one other uh, category that I'm going to say Um, is elected officials. Sometimes these are sheriffs and sometimes these are politicians. The people who are elected officials, um, they might get campaign contributions from those who benefit from the system. Um, And are they going to be likely to uh, vote to change the system when the people who are padding their pockets are in favor of it? Probably not. Then there are a lot of sheriffs across the country that actually get money from the federal government to arrest and prosecute low-level drug offenders. The more people they incarcerate, the more people they arrest, the more money they get. Sometimes they get tanks and other, you know, the kind of weaponry and machinery that is not needed outside of a war zone, and some small-town sheriff gets it because he arrested enough low-level people. Um, This creates a perverse incentive and helps perpetuate and expand mass incarceration, just so a few people can profit from it. Wow. Wow. Um, I, I recently had a chat with the director of corrections in one of the regional states here in the Northwest, and he expressed a, what I feel to be a sincere interest in, and, and an awareness of the, what they face from within. And so certainly this conversation is also acknowledging that there's a lot of really good people with good intentions within this current system, and um, more often than not, that perhaps also are um, victims, in a, in a way, of, mm-hmm. of the punitive paradigm and of the operational aspects that are in place because of that. Sure. Um, I mean, we have a system that incentivizes certain kinds of things. And so even if you are a good person who wants change, you're probably gonna, not going to last long in the system if you're too much of a squeaky wheel about it. Um, and then so the system will attract the kinds of people who are cool with it. It inculcates certain kinds of values 
that these incentives are okay and this is just the way things are done. And sooner or later you have people who, have, who can say accurately that they have total integrity and believe in what they're doing. And yet what they're doing is completely perverse and is not promoting public safety as they believe it to be because they have a system with the wrong kinds of incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, so ab- ab- absolutely you can have good people doing bad things in an institution because the institution is bad. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's watched The Wire you know, can see how you have people with good intentions facing all kinds of obstacles and being unable to surmount them in kind of tragic ways because the system is rigged. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's uh, focus uh, for a moment also on the, the issue of, do you have some numbers you could share with us? Of, uh, what, are taxpayer, w- yeah. what are taxpayers looking at right now well, because of mass incarceration? This is both a plus and, and, and a minus, and let me explain that. The way that this is a minus, of course, is the taxpayers are responsible for a huge cost to maintain mass incarceration. They're paying about $74 billion a year for the prisons themselves. They are paying, and once you count courts and cops uh, in, that, in that number, because, of course, you need the cops to fill the prisons and you need the courts to process them, we're talking about $230 billion a year the taxpayers are on the hook for to perpetuate mass incarceration. Um, and that doesn't count all kinds of other incidental costs that come from the prohibition of drugs, the crime that's associated with it, uh, and, and, and so on. So taxpayers are on the hook for a huge amount. So that's the bad news. The good news is that because states are increasingly cash-strapped and they're realizing that they can't afford to fund these prisons anymore, they are now starting to look for other solutions. So of all the stuff you know, I've been saying about the system being rigged, it'll take a long time for change, et cetera, et cetera, we have a moment of hope right now where both right and left, conservatives who care about uh, money, and liberals who've been talking about humanitarian concerns and justice and fairness, um, they have been coming together increasingly um, to demand criminal justice reform. They might have different reasons for it, but you know what? Who cares? If we can cut into mass incarceration, that's a good thing. Mm. What about lobbyists? What about the lobbying sector? And who and, and what is their level of involvement right now? Within. You know, in, in anything, you know, I mean, I think lobbyists are kind of this go-between between any moneyed interest and the government. Um, you know, they themselves are only the face of the corporations that, that they serve. Um, but, of course, when you spend, when a corporation can spend millions of dollars on lobbyists and people who are incarcerated cannot, you know, there's no incarcerated people's lobby that has any real power to speak of, then, of course, the voices of private prisons, the prison profiteers are going to be heard much louder by policymakers. And again, they can be good people and they can sincerely believe in what they're doing. That doesn't change the fact that policymakers are only hearing from that set of voices because that's who has the money to hire the lobbyists. And of course, the lobbyists make out handsomely from it and are paid richly for it. Um, you know, that's their business model. I'd like to, to go back for a moment. Um, given that we just passed the year mark of the Trayvon Martin murder, um, can we talk a minute about what, you know, what all that involved and some of the laws that were passed in Florida that yeah. um, have been really hot topics even you know, for this whole last year? Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly, How does that I... inform this idea and, and reality, not just an idea, but the, how does it inform mass incarceration? Right. Well, there, on, on you know, guns, for instance, there was the stand your ground laws, and which involves use of guns. And now, after Sandy Hook, there's you know a, a lot of talk about it. Interestingly enough, people can oppose mass incarceration and have very different views on that. There are an awful lot of libertarians who want a much smaller government and a much less oppressive government, who nevertheless you know believe in a strong Second Amendment, um, who believe in sort of absolutist terms that there can be no compromise when it comes to gun rights. Then there there are people on the left who believe in gun regulation, uh, who want to restrict these kinds of activities because they believe that will make us safer. But they, too, want a smaller prison state uh, because they don't like the unjust effects that it has. Um, So however you end up interpreting events like Trayvon Martin and Sandy Hook, um, people are still finding a reason to oppose mass incarceration, and that, I think, is where the hope lies. Mm. So uh, 
while we're over in Florida, um, before we go further along and go into the solutions arena, let's take a moment to really focus on the GEO Group and Florida Atlantic University. And let me just preface this to everyone with us tonight. Jesse wrote uh, a really powerful and to-the-point blog that was featured on the Huffington Post recently. And this was the first awareness, actually, that I myself had of the fact that the GEO Group, which is, um, as Jesse mentioned, uh, a, prison corpor- a private prison corporation who um, well, I'll let you tell the story, Jesse. Sure. But I really want to focus on this and and make sure people know that they can also take action around yeah. this situation. So, well, if you go, you if you go to beyondbars.org, beyondbars.org, and scroll down, you'll see something about where you can take this action, and that'll tell you all about it. There's a petition there that you can sign about this issue. Um, and what happened is uh, the Geo Group, a a private prison company that is notorious, that has a record of human rights violations, abuses, neglect of prisoners under its care. Um, They paid $6 million to a college, uh, not a private college, but a public university called Florida Atlantic University. And in exchange, Florida Atlantic University is calling its new football stadium Geo Group Stadium. So they are basically emblazoning the name of a human rights violator right there on its football stadium for all to see. And why this is so uh, repugnant um, is that it normalizes, it desensitizes, it makes, us, it makes people believe um, that there's no big problem with the private prison industry. Well, they're good, upstanding citizens. They're obviously associated with this public university. How bad could they really be? Um, and, you know, there are students at Florida Atlantic University who are protesting this right now because they don't want their institution of higher learning to be associated with the lowest of the low. And, you know, all too often, that's where Geo Group and its facilities are. Um, so what, what I would suggest is that everybody go to beyondbars.org, find the petition, sign the petition, share it, and students who are actually going to have an action tomorrow uh, at noon Eastern time, they are going to take the petitions that we have collected, and they're going to present them to the uh, school president in an open forum, uh, and they're going to uh, address their grievances in this open forum as well. So go ahead and, and sign it, and uh, every name that we get is uh, more paper that they can hand to the, uh, the president of the university to make their point. And will the president be at that forum? Yes, she will. She's what is her name again, please? Her name is Mary Jo Saunders. Okay. And there's also a very valuable short YouTube clip also um, from the foundation that yes. outlines this situation. Um, and is that prominently posted? I didn't check, uh, but it, I think it is on your yeah. Beyond Bars site. Yeah, if, if you go to take this action, you will go right to the petition page, and on that petition page you will see a video that lays out the whole, the whole thing. And actually one thing that we found, and this is probably the article you saw that, that I wrote in the Huffington Post, right after the news broke, that the GEO Group was paying $6 million for the naming rights to this, this uh, college stadium. Right after the news broke in there and some controversy erupted, it appears that a GEO Group uh, media guy went into Wikipedia and tried to scrub it of all negative references to the GEO Group. And the funny thing is, he didn't even use some, you know, weird, uh, some, some weird screen name that was you know, inscrutable or something. He just used his own name. So you Google it. His name is Abraham Cohen. And you see that Abraham Cohen is the media guy for uh, the GEO Group in Florida. So this guy was basically, you know, this is not exactly along the lines of what an institution of higher learning should be pushing, but he was trying to remove transparency and scrub its records so that an open dialogue uh, could not be had, or at least could not be had quite so easily. So that got picked up on, and I think there's been a pattern of deception from the GEO Group over and over about this issue. Um, and, and, you know, I guess if, if the facts were out there and if the facts were known by people, it'd be kind of hard to justify what they're doing. Jesse, one other thing, too, before we, we move along. Um, you said something that's really important. Uh, a lot of times people think, well, private prison companies, they only make up a small percentage yeah. of the, you know, the general state and federal prison population. Yeah. But 
let's just earmark again, and if you could speak to it, uh, the influence, even with a smaller percentage of holdings, and certainly not because they don't want further deals, which, you know, for example, the, the Correctional Corporation of America um, rolled out uh, a deal, so to speak, mm-hmm. to state prisons where they were offering cash money for uh, for people to sign f- towards, um, uh, I think it was up, upwards of 20-year contracts with the stipulation that they keep their beds 90% full. Right. So they how were much asking, more obvious can this get? Right. I mean, what kind of a state would say, yeah, we're going to promise for the next two or three decades to make sure that wherever our prison beds are now, that we're going to keep them 90% full. What you're basically promising is that you can't reduce crime, is that you can't reduce the need to incarcerate people. Um, now, the private prisons don't care. They don't, you know, it, it goes against their interest to reduce crime. They put in their, you know, press releases and publicity materials, things about rehabilitation and so on. But if there were actually a commitment to rehabilitation in this country, the private prisons would go out of business because it wouldn't be profitable. Um, so, yeah, they tried CCA, the Correctional Corporation of America, has, is trying to make a deal with almost every state in the union where they say, we'll buy your, 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 uh, your prison system from you, just make us the promise that you'll keep the beds 90% full for the next two or three decades. I mean, that's pretty repugnant. And also, the, the number of people in private prisons is growing. You know, 40 years ago, there weren't private prisons. Um, this is a relatively new thing that, that, has, that has come up, and it's been ticking up and ticking up and ticking up. But in addition to the private prisons, like I mentioned, there's prison profiteering in all kinds of ways. There are people who profit from prisons because they oversee a probation system or a parole system. There are people who profit because they oversee the phone or the healthcare system at at prisons. There are the people who profit from prison labor. There's all kinds of ways that you can be a prison profiteer, even if you're not a private prison, and all of that is dangerous. So in turning our attention a bit towards solutions, yeah. um, obviously this weekly series is focused on restorative justice and related fields and, and topical issues. And so perhaps um, let's start with the important mention you make of rebuilding our communities. Mm. And maybe then we could cover also the area of well, what happens when when people are incarcerated, what can we do to change things? And I'd also like to just pause for a second because I see that we have a hand up in tonight's group. So I'm going to open this up to to take a live question or comment, and then we'll get to that, okay? Sure. Mike, welcome. You're live. Thank you. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm sorry to make this as a rhetorical question, but this whole issue about guns and assault weapons that's been going on and I see it as a effort to throw out a red herring to really uh, distract people from dealing with all the all the very real issues that you're talking about and I'm just that's that's been my thrust as I'm dealing with this situation I appreciate any thoughts you have on it sure um, you know, I, I do think people have legitimate concerns on, on both sides of it and there are arguments to be made on both sides of it. But as I was saying, I think there's plenty of work to do by people who disagree even on the issue, that there doesn't have to be widespread agreement on what the Second Amendment means and what gut control should or shouldn't be for us to agree on mass incarceration and its devastating effect on our communities, especially communities of colors and, uh, excuse me, communities of color. Uh, and uh, of course, they're, you know, these are communities being absolutely ripped apart um, by uh, prisons that, you know, you get cops who go in and arrest people on maybe specious grounds, maybe on real grounds, but then they come out of their communities, they go miles and miles away to some prison, they're no longer being productive members of their society, they're being taken out of their society. When they come back, they can't get a job. And so what do you know? You have a lot of neighborhoods with a lot of unemployed people who are going to end up in prison again. This is a cycle that goes on and on and on, and we can try to fix that cycle regardless of our stance on assault weapons. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Let's let's uh, turn our attention, as mentioned a moment ago, to solutions. And to perhaps start with that, 
just a few quick thoughts from you on this concept of restorative justice as you understand it, and do you think it it has the potential to play a strong role in in weaving our communities back together? And I, to obviously I love, I love, love, love the idea of restorative justice. And you know, in some cases, it it will work better than others. But I, I mean, the way I understand restorative justice is it's a whole different model. It's people commu- uh, coming together, those who committed crimes and those who are the victims of crimes, the family members of each, community members who are also stakeholders in it, and talking it through and figuring out what can be done to resolve it. You know, what does the victim actually want as restitution? You know, what can the person actually do? I've heard of cases where there was a youth who, um, who stole something from, from someone, and, in, and the, the woman didn't want to press charges. The woman didn't want him to go to jail because she knew once he was in the juvenile system, he'd probably you know, be in and out of prison for the rest of his life. So instead, this kid had a dream of being an artist. And so she said, you know what, why don't, but he was always stifled from doing anything about it. So she said, why don't you paint me a, a, a picture, like a huge picture about body size of Tinkerbell? And if you do that, we're forgiven. And wow. now, you know, this kid ended up going on a different track because he was able to um, explore a side of himself that, that has meaning, that, that where he feels a sense of purpose. Um, and meanwhile, this woman said, all right, you know, I get to put up this painting in my house. We're done. Why do you have to involve the criminal justice system if, if the person who committed the crime and the victim are perfectly fine with working it out themselves? Why would you possibly want to bring in the criminal justice system? So I really love the idea of restorative justice because it's an alternative way of thinking about creating safe, healthy communities, and I'd love to see more of it. Mm. And it's interesting, too, at this very moment, as, as we've been exploring what might be called the rock bottom of uh, a so-called justice system, we also have a, a great rising in solutions and alternatives and statistics to go with it, to give it mm-hmm. so-called teeth. Yeah. And um, let's pause again. We have another member of the council tonight who'd like to comment and ask a question. We'll get right back to this conversation. Tonya, welcome. You're live. Hello. Can you hear me? Hi, Tonya. Hi. Hi. I, I was touched by both sides. I'm, I'm both the daughter of the murdered and the aunt of the murderer, and uh, my my nephew who committed the murder was altered from substance abuse and considered as potentially mentally ill. When the crime was committed, it was went through trial for a year and some months, and the um, prosecuting, the DA, wasn't open to looking outside of the state for placement of my nephew. The prison system wasn't a good fit for him, but the mental, um, let's say asylums, but there was really no place for him to to fit, to be treated Mm -hmm. for. So he's imprisoned because the, the one place that was available didn't accept people who committed a crime of such magnitude. And so he's in prison. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I don't – go ahead. I'm sorry, Tonya. How, how is it created that there are places to help these people? Yeah, I, I wish all. I wish there were a good answer to – to the question, I wish that I could say there were plenty of places where people could go um, to treat, you know, if they're mentally ill, where they can be treated. I wish I could say that we had a strong uh, commitment to healthy communities that included intervention to identify those who are mentally ill and perhaps dangerously so and, and getting to them early to either put them on the right track or having them in a facility where they can be taken better care of. Now, I personally, speaking for myself, I do believe that there is a role for taking people who are violent and dangerous and keeping them away from the public. Um, I, I do believe that you know, safety requires that some people not be able to walk around with everyone else. The problem is our, our prisons are filled with people that we're not just scared of. Our prisons are filled with people that we're mad at. 
and we need to make sure that we're prioritizing um, for the people we're just mad at um, health, addiction treatment, counseling, restorative justice, ways that we can create a healthy community where, where everyone can be as productive as they possibly can. Mm. Thank you, Tonya, so much for, for sharing that. And um, I just want to go back for a moment. Um, statistics and teeth and the rising of restorative justice and point out a couple really great resources for people um, that we can look towards. I mean, obviously this is a movement that has its origins in, for example, the favelas in Rio de Janeiro and the work of Dominic Barter in Restorative Circles, which is based out of Rio, but certainly a worldwide movement. Um, there's uh, the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, named after River Phoenix and his noble efforts to leverage his uh, fame towards uh, social change and justice. And that that's in, out of Florida, but also uh, mostly in Eastern Seaboard Regional Programming. There's Lauren Abramson and the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore. There's, uh, there's uh, the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, um, Sujata Baliga, who uh, was recently featured in a New York Times Magazine piece that um, covered the, the, uh, a murder case and uh, a process, pre-sentencing of restorative justice uh, there's so many people and organizations doing very credible, valid work. Another one would be the Longmont Community Restored, uh, the Longmont Community Justice Partnership here in Colorado. Uh, they have some some growing statistics in their juvenile diversion and restorative practices programs that illuminate the fact that um, they're not seeing more of uh, like I guess it's called reoffense or recidivism even, um, when restorative justice processes are in place. And next week's guest actually is from the Longmont, Colorado Police Department. And he is a voice of, of, of power in his initial doubts as an Army, um, as, as someone who has served in the Army and who is a devoted um, police officer who, who had severe skepticism to the power of restorative justice. And then he saw it in action and actually was a, an instrumental part of incorporating it more deeply at the Longmont Police Department. So I just I, I can't speak enough to the uh, incredible rising of, uh, of, just as we see, the, um, the rock bottom of a system that clearly is uh, ripe right now and urgently needing um, change. So Jesse, I just want to go back again um, to th this solution conversation. Um, can you talk a little bit more about solutions that you, 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 you think might work given all of these facts, things that you've seen in action, perhaps even some case examples that you'd sure. like to share tonight? Sure. Well, first of all, you mentioned Sujata Balaga and uh, her work at the National Council on Crime and Delinquency uh, in, in Oakland. Um, I actually just had lunch with her yesterday, and she's the one who gave me that Tinkerbell story that, that, I, that I used today. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, she was the one who was <clears throat> um, brokering, brokering that, um, and, and I'm hoping that Beyond Bars will do some uh, work with her um, in terms of uh, doing a documentary video on restorative justice. Um, but to get to your question, I mean, there are there are a number of rays of hope. There are a number of groups that are doing excellent work. I mean, we've profiled the Fortune Society, which is a group in New York that provides supportive housing and all kinds of other services for, for people who've been formerly uh, incarcerated. Um, you know, there's also on the kind of a more centrist, almost conservative end of the spectrum in terms of reform, there's still nevertheless a program that's doing fairly, getting fairly good results in Hawaii called Project HOPE where it basically says that if you um, violate your probation, you know, maybe with, by uh, testing positive for drugs, um, instead of going to prison for, you know, years and going back into your full term, you go to jail for a week. You know, you go to jail for a few days, something like that. And it turns out that as long as you do it quickly, as long as you do it quickly after the probation was violated, you actually get far less recidivism. 
So, uh, you know, the idea that putting someone behind bars for five years is going to stop them from committing another crime is being proven false. You can vastly reduce the number of people behind bars just by having much, much shorter sentences. So Project Hope in Hawaii is an example uh, of that. I mean, I could kind of go, go on and on, but there are a number of, of wonderful programs that are treating people and, and, and doing good, good work, and you mentioned a bunch of the good ones yourself in terms of restorative justice. But I, I think the important thing here is that as we talk about how broken the system is, that we mm -hmm. shouldn't walk away from it saying to ourselves, Jesus, everything's just effed and, you know, there's nothing that can be done. Gee, isn't the United States awful? There, mm -hmm. there is a potential for change, and people are out there proving it uh, all the time. So if we adjust our policies to encourage those kinds of organizations, encourage the best of those kinds of organizations, the ones who do more effective work, because, you know, there are scams that are tre treatment centers too um, that don't do very good work. Um, so if we really have a commitment to promoting that, we could have a very different criminal justice system, and so that's what we should be pursuing. Mm. I so agree with you too that that there's it it's a monumental moment of both crisis and opportunity mm -hmm. <laughs> to um somewhat quote the I Ching. Um and the you know, the the idea of um of where we go from now, a lot of people that are participants and council members in this series ongoing are doing their own form of work in various aspects of, of this of this, this field and beyond. But what about the, the people who have a strong passion for, for taking action and don't know where to start? How, how, how do we go about making change and, and offering ourselves when we're not quite sure of, of what our niche is yet? Yeah, well, of course, I would direct everyone to beyondbars.org, which is the organization that, that I run, um, and to sign up. Uh, we do a lot of video content. You can share you can share our videos. There are a lot of petitions to sign. Sometimes we're partnering with organizations where you actually will contact representatives um, and do other very concrete things depending on what state you're in and, and so on. But there, the, the reality is there are a lot of groups doing really good things. The ACLU has a lot of great local chapters, and you can get involved in the ACLU's local chapters. Um, it actually has a very strong network of local chapters that are doing good things in a variety of states. Um, it depends on where you live you know, what's, what's strong and where you can volunteer. Um, but there is work to be done if you look. Um, it's, it's out there. Google around for, you know, if you don't find it in 10 minutes, then take an hour. Um, there are good groups out there. Mm. Well, finally tonight as we move towards uh, closing, I'd really like to ask you to, to, to flesh out a little bit more about what's cooking for Beyond Bars right now. And, yeah. um, I mean, we've already covered a few things obviously, especially with the geo group petition that people can take action with. Um, but what, what do you, do you travel and offer, you know, talks and, and um, various aspects of uh, educational opportunities for people or what, what, what other things are, are happening right now sure. or in the future that we can point to? Right. Well, a lot of our stuff, first of all, you can follow us on Facebook, and that's facebook.com slash beyondbars or twitter.com slash beyondbars. And, you know, every new initiative is basically posted on social media as it happens. We also have a lot of shareable graphics that you can just, as a very quick thing you can do to get the message out, share those with, with the people uh, you know. Um, so you should always keep an eye out for our Facebook stuff. But in addition, we have a video series that will be coming out in um, a couple of months called Prison Profiteers, uh, and we're going to be highlighting highlighting a variety of the villains in this story. Um, and these are the people who are doing the worst things to profit off of other people's misery in the incarceration system. So we're going to be highlighting that so that people understand what's going on and can begin to fight back. Because right now, if they're the only ones that have a voice in the system uh, because no one else knows what they're doing, then of course nothing's going to change. So we have to understand what's going on as a first step. Um, we also are, are continuing to do a whole bunch of work, as I mentioned, with restorative justice. I hope to be working with uh, Sujatha. Um, we're working with a group called Sojourners, which is sort of a, uh, a liberal uh, religious group that wants to reach out to um, Christians um, and get them involved in mass incarceration, um, and we just produced a video that they're going to be releasing. Really, the best way to keep up with, with what we're doing would be to you know, join our email list and follow us on Facebook. Mm -hmm. That's so, it's so exciting to me to hear of this possible work with Sujata and the National mm -hmm. Council on Crime and Delinquency, and certainly to mobilize 
you're, you've got um, tens of thousands of people already in your network, if not hundreds of thousands. So you have a very powerful network leveraged already with Beyond Bars and, and the foundation. And um, it's just exciting to me to hear of this possibility of a, of a more um, granular focus on restorative justice as one of, of your projects. That's yeah, great. Yeah, and I'll mention and I'll mention one more real quick that I I neglected to to mention. We're going to do too. a series called Dump the DEA, which is going to be uh, educating folks on just how much the the Drug Enforcement Administration has failed us uh, and needs to be dismantled. It's going to be a campaign that we're undertaking with the Drug Policy Alliance uh, in a few months. So stay mm. tuned for that. Great. Well, it's just been great having you with us tonight, Jesse, and I just want to remind people one more time, if you haven't already checked out Beyond Bars, the website address is beyondbars.org, and also if you could also check out the, the Brave New Foundation website, they've got great stuff there as well about all of their projects, and that's bravenewfoundation.org. So um, also extending an invitation to everyone tonight, and to pass along uh, this series to those of, um, that you might think are interested in joining us. It's free, ongoing, every Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, next week's guest, like I mentioned just a moment ago, is going to be uh, Longmont Police Department Officer Greg Ruprecht. So join us next week. And in the upcoming future, we also will be talking with uh, State Representative Pete Lee and also Kathy Kelly, who is um, is a nominee has been a multiple nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, as well as many other people doing very significant work on the ground in restorative justice. We hope this platform provides you a space of inspiration, information, and connection. And we look forward to seeing you in the future. And Jesse, once again, on behalf of the Peace Alliance and myself and all of us here at this council, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks and we'll for see you again me. soon. All right. Good night, everyone.